Our second lesson today comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. I am beginning uh, today and for the next few weeks a brief sermon series from this particular chapter, chapter 8 of Romans. I'm reading today the first 11 verses of Romans 8. We keep listening for God's word and keep opening our hearts to God's spirit. Listen. There is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the Spirit set their minds, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit since the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you know that I am just back from a few days of vacation in Montreat, North Carolina. From my earliest days, from my wife Ginger's earliest days, we have often spent time in the summer in Montreat, North Carolina for rest, for relaxation, for refreshment. We also, as you heard, have a large group of our young people there, 16 youth and six advisors, along with Gail, currently in Montreat for this whole week at the Montreat Youth Conference. And we hope and we pray that our young people will find deeper faith, sincere refreshment, and real renewal in Montreat, too. Now, most trips to Montreat for me remind me of another visit there some years ago when I decided to go and visit the, the local barber shop in Black Mountain, North Carolina, just outside of Montreat. I thought that a haircut might help me and my looks just a bit. And after all, getting my haircut, as you can imagine, is just not that complicated. So uh, a visit to an unknown barber seems like no big deal, right? So I went into the barber shop on the main drag in Black Mountain. I waited my turn, and I sat in the chair thumbing through the magazines on the table, and I was listening to the local banter around the barber shop. When it came to my turn, I jumped up into the, the chair and 
when the barber asked what he could do for me, I told the guy that I was looking for a light trim. He tied on the cape and fastened it around my neck, and he got out his comb and his scissors and is quite common in a place like this. As you know, if you've ever watched Andy of Mayberry, you get the idea. It's a place of lively banter among menfolk especially. Well, the usual questions came along. Is this your first time in? Yeah, I'm over in Montreat, spending a little time, and I decided to get a haircut. Oh, nice day, isn't it? Yeah, nice day. Everything's going fine in this little banter. So, where are you from? Well, I live up the road in Virginia. Oh, after a long silence. So, what do you do in Virginia? Well, I'm a pastor at a Presbyterian church. And then things got interesting. (laughs) So, does that mean that you're a preacher? I said, yeah. I preach on Sunday mornings. I lead worship whenever we gather. I'm a Presbyterian minister. And I told him the name of my church, and he was really interested in this preaching thing. So, he said, let me ask you. And he stepped back a bit with his comb and his scissors, and he looked at me. He says, when you preach, do you really preach? I mean, do you really preach it? Because... That's what I like, and I'm sitting there tucked in under the cape, and here's this guy getting excited, wielding scissors and clippers. And I said, what do you mean? What do you mean? I take the Bible passage, and I give it serious reflection and study week in and week out, and I try to help people understand it, and I try to help them apply it to their lives, and I do this every Sunday. But. He said, do you really preach? Do you really preach? I mean, do you make people feel bad? (laughs) Do you stomp on their toes every Sunday? Do you make them walk out guilty? Because that's what I like. I like to leave the church feeling guilty. I need to be fussed at. I need to be directed to find my way in faithful living. Do you preach like that? Because that's what I like. And at this moment, I'm not only thinking about my preaching, I'm thinking about my haircut. Because <laughs> he's just getting started, and I'm not sure where this is going to go. I told him that my main goal in preaching is to encourage folks in faith and faithfulness. I told him that my main goal in preaching is to proclaim the gospel of a God who loves us from the beginning of time and a God who calls us to live faithfully as disciples following Jesus And he said to me that the way he's most encouraged is when he's fussed at. The way he's most encouraged is when he feels guilty. The way he's most encouraged is when he's convicted and made to feel bad. And I got a very fresh sense that there are different strokes for different folks. And I am really grateful to a powerful God who works through so many different means to help us move along in our journeys, and many of us need different things. He's even telling me he wants to be fussed at. I am really grateful to the God of the Scriptures and the God of all of our traditions who uses all kinds of means and methods to help us with the way 
and the truth and the life. Now, I think about this incident when I read chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans. It says, and you heard it already, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Many commentators even say that Romans 8.1 is a major turning point in this whole complicated letter that Paul writes and the major turning point in Paul's effort to convey the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul's key point here is that while we may sometimes need condemnation, while sometimes we need to be convicted or chastised or fussed at, and it happens throughout the story of God and God's people, condemnation is not the primary way. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation. Perhaps we don't dish it out as Presbyterian pastors in our tradition. Perhaps it's not the main mode of preaching in this church or in many Presbyterian churches. But you know what? We're all drawn to condemnation. We are. Many of us live with regret about various seasons of our lives where we feel condemned. When self-loathing can really beat us down. We know we have been perhaps less than the greatest fathers or mothers. We admit that as sons and daughters, we have disappointed ourselves or others. We have condemnation that haunts us about various relationships that we've been in. Close ones or work relationships or others. And we have failed ourselves and failed those people and failed God. It can be very condemning. Others of us struggle to shake off issues about addictions or other struggles that bring dark condemnation to our lives. As a church, as a city, We think about past history, we think about failures, and we feel condemned. And perhaps we should feel condemned in some cases. Condemnation can indeed perplex us and very much paralyze us. Moreover, in these days, around our country, our leaders in Washington have the immense task of sorting out complex economic and budget issues in order to keep our economy afloat and these Deliberations seem mostly about condemning the other. The recent news about the Casey Anthony trial in Florida may incite us to condemn her. How could she do such a thing? Or we want to condemn the courts who could come down with such a verdict. Does human nature mostly mean condemnation? You could make that case, I think. And, of course, there's Libya and there's Pakistan and there's Afghanistan and there's the whole Palestinian situation. And condemnation flows in all of these places, too. In so many places, in fact, our lives, our world, seem full of 
condemnation. Yet Paul begins this chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul's message here, this major turning point in Romans, Romans wants to set us free and set us on a new course of living. Actually, what Paul is saying is the very crux of the Christian faith. With the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, a shift has taken place in human history, and that shift is meant to be played out in every believer's heart and life. The old age of the flesh is past, he says. A new age of the spirit has begun. With the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been set free from sin and death. And we celebrate that every Sunday with our confession and response litany. We belong now to the life of God. We belong now to the life of peace and hope and possibility. While we were held captive to sin and death, we belong now to the Spirit of God. This is what he's saying, the good news of the gospel. So we walk not according to death, but to life, according to, not according to the flesh, but to the Spirit. Paul says, to set your mind on the things of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the things of the Spirit is life and peace, he says. And finally, you're not in the flesh. You are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. The Spirit dwells in you. That's the promise. That's what it says. It may be easy or even tempting to think that his use of these words, flesh and spirit, are trying to emphasize two parts of our human nature, flesh and spirit. But that is not at all the way Paul means it. Our nature always includes both natures, both parts, flesh and spirit, body and soul, mind and matter. We don't have two natures. That's a Greek idea. Not a biblical idea. Instead, Paul is urging us in the ways of living in the world. How do you live in the world? Well, we can live according to the flesh, he says, or we can live according to the spirit. To live according to the flesh, and Paul speaks much about this, not only in this passage, but in other places. To live according to the flesh is to live in the old age. Life in the flesh is a life of bondage. And a life of bondage always leads to a focus on the self, selfishness and self-preservation, self-centeredness. That's not how you live. He says, life in the flesh is overly focused on selfish things, on pleasing ourselves. Life in the flesh is about the me with the capital M and a capital E. It leads to bragging about the me. It leads to telling others how good I am or even how pious I am. It's obviously worrying about our self-image. It's worrying about our self-worth. And so much of our culture plays right into this thinking. Am I getting enough? Am I attaining enough? Or maybe it's living out this sense of entitlement. This is my life, my life, me. And I can do what I want. This is my right I'm not accountable to anyone, and I don't have to be even caring about anyone. Selfishness and entitlement seem so prevalent in our culture, and all of that 
All of that, Paul says, is to belong to the old powers, which keeps us chasing after things that never satisfy us. The old way. And he's trying to say, that old way is over. The new has come. This new, this other way of living is living in the new age, living in the spirit. To live according to the spirit is to belong to God in Christ Jesus, who brings us into right relationship with God and others. To live according to the spirit is to find meaning, not in our achievements that divide us, but in grace and faith. That unites us. To live according to the Spirit is to live not for the self, not for the me, but for others, for God. It's to live not in fusses, but in faith. To live not in condemnation of ourselves or others, but to live in compassion and care and in community. To live in the Spirit is to set aside the self and Serve God in all we do, in our relationships, in our work, in our daily living, to glorify God and enjoy God forever. That's how you live in the Spirit. This is how the Scriptures keep calling it, living in the Spirit. Some time ago, I read an article in a Presbyterian journal that has, a, that has had an important impact on me and my own reflections about life, this person said at a certain point in his life, he realized that he had to quit thinking of himself as a worldly person who practiced the spirit life just a little bit and change and realize that he's actually a spirit person who happens to live in the world. Said that he found real transformation when he recognized that he was actually first and foremost a spiritual person who happened to live in the world, not the other way around. This is a helpful insight to me as I struggle and live faithfully every day. It's far too easily, mostly to think of ourselves as worldly people who live a little bit in the spirit life. And this is exactly what Romans 8 is warning us against. For those of us who are in Christ, a new power is at work in and through you, Paul says. We walk not according to the flesh, not chasing after achievements that never satisfy us. We live according to the Spirit. The Spirit guides us. The Spirit works in and through us. The Spirit is God's great gift to all of us, we are intended to be spiritual people who happen to live in the world. We so often get it wrong, don't we? That we're worldly people trying to live with a little bit of spirit in our worldly lives. No, we live according to the spirit, Paul says. To set the minds on the things of the spirit is life and peace. So think about your life this past week. Think about your life this coming week. There's two ways of living. Things of the flesh, things of the spirit. Which one is giving you life and peace? And how can you work on that, really, all of us? That's our calling from this passage. This past week, I found myself in the attic. No one likes going in the attic in the middle of a summer day. But the A.C. in our house had quit working. The house was hot. 
What's going on? I checked the breaker box to see if the power outage had clicked and disconnected the breaker. I checked everything before going into the attic. In the attic, I climbed through the rafters. I got dust all over my clothes. I got cobwebs on my head. I crawled over the mechanical equipment. I was even beginning to think that we were in for a very major new system in our house because the one we had had quit producing cool air on these hot days and it didn't have a chance anymore. Then I found the problem. Somehow the condensation drain that had had gotten backed up in our system. And in our house we have a pan that hangs out underneath the system and it If the condensation line gets backed up, the pan gets full, and there is a switch in that pan. If it gets water on it, it cuts the system off. And indeed, the pan was full of water, and the system had been cut off. So we made sure it was cut off, and then we began cleaning out the condensation pan that was full of water, and that's no easy task in a hot attic. And then I followed the condensation pan and the condensation line out of the attic and down the wall and all the way to the ground. And sure enough, it was covered up with dust and muck and leaves and all kinds of other grime. And it had stopped the water all the way up to the attic, backing up the system. As soon as I cleared the drain, the water poured out, the AC started, and the coolness returned. And I think the best part of all is I did all this without even calling a technician. And then I started thinking, what is the muck and the mess that's clogging up the lines of our lives that keep us from living as spiritual people in the world? What deters you from living? What what has gotten your life so blocked with condemnation that you're not free to live as Paul invites us to live, people of the Spirit? Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and it leads to death, Paul says. To set the mind on the Spirit means life and peace. Our lives get so filled with muck and challenge. Condemnation can paralyze us. Condemnation, when we spew it, poisons us and poisons the whole world. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, friends, we live according to the Spirit. This passage is a fresh invitation for each of us to find life and loves, to find hope and purpose and peace, not in achievements, not in selfish pursuits, but in spiritual lives engaged in the world for healing, for peace, for possibility. This is an invitation anew. Think about my life and your life, our relationships. With our loved ones, our connections to our priorities. Through this week, what's going to happen? How are you going to deal with it? Our approach to work. How could you think differently? Do we live more in the flesh toward death? Or do we live more toward in the spirit, toward life? And when we go that way to eternal life. Paul says, how do we live? This is an invitation in the good news of the gospel to set fresh purposes for each of our lives so that we can live toward God, live toward one another, 
and live toward God's reign of peace and wholeness in the world? How will you live according to the Spirit this week, this month, this life? May God's Spirit so touch us and transform us and move us toward life and peace and eternal life for the whole world. Hallelujah. Amen. Let us pray. Life in the Spirit, O God, it's your gracious way for each of us. Draw us to that life. Lead us to follow Jesus. Amen.